There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those 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 boys. That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you talking about? What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to you, Fax. I'll say it to you now. What are you doing down here, you show me, man? It's the Irish Times second captain's football podcast at the start of International Week, and the Republic of Ireland players have arrived into camp with goals in their boots. Mark, Mark Walters, I have here. Mark Walters. That'd be Jonathan Walters as a goal for Stoke. Yeah. Uh, in the win against Spurs Jeff Hendrick Two goals for Derby County In a routing of Wolves Robbie Keane Helped himself to one of oh. The LA Galaxy's Five goals Against Real Salt Lake oh, yeah. uh, Landon Donovan With three Salt there again Salt Lake of Tears uh, Salt Lake of Tears Yeah Out of the playoffs At the hands of Robbie Keane And Landon Donovan Shane Long Two goals off the bench for Southampton. Uh, and nice goals as well. And it could have been a hat-trick. Did you see the one he took with his chest in the last minute and whipped a volley just... Was it saved or hit the side netting? Anyway, it was, uh, it was very close to a, a hat-trick. He's done that a couple of times, hasn't he, Shane Long? You know, I mean, he hadn't scored for 11 games and then he suddenly scores two nice goals. I mean, I remember he scored two incredible goals against Villa, wasn't it? Um, for It must have been... Maybe it was Hull, maybe it was West Brom. Mm. You know, surrounded by this sort of goalless desert, stretching away for months on either side, and then two amazing goals. Um, so yeah, hopefully he hasn't shot his bolt. And, yeah, and Seamus Coleman a goal for Everton. Well, I can see you looking at me like that, Ken. He was about to score a goal until he was hauled down for a penalty. So yeah. I'm going to give Seamus Coleman that goal here and add him to the list. Should have been a goal, and it should have been a red card as well. Unfortunately, a couple of the other players are carrying X-rays and MRI scans in their luggage into the Irish base. Oh. But we were a bunch of goal-scoring machines ready to roll over the jocks on Friday night, Ken. Mm. Uh, that's, a, that's the kind of confidence we need. I'm getting very excited already this early in the week about this Scotland-Ireland game. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty exciting game, in fairness. Um, this is about as as good as it gets to quite me- mediocre teams, <laughs> but therefore evenly matched. No, two quite mediocre teams playing quite well, at the, playing to the limit of their abilities at the moment. Playing well, full of excitement. Yeah. Uh, there can only be one. Well, feasibly there could be two. We have to eliminate a, Poland. Would you take a draw at this stage of the week? Would I take a draw away to Scotland? Yes, I probably would. Yeah, you'd probably have to. Probably take a draw. Cause especially because I've been reading um, the Daily Record Oh, I've, yeah. been, I've been trolling the Scottish media. Well, do you want to get find... into the report on sport? Yeah, why not? Why not? So I've been reading Keith Jackson in the Daily Record, and uh, he's got me quaking in my boots here. 
um, because he's, um, well, I'll, I'll read you out some of what he has to say. And he says, quite simply, today Scotland has better players than the Republic of Ireland, almost right across the board. Only three or four of O'Neill's squad would get anywhere near Scotland's starting <laughs> eleven. The big fat irony being that two of them were born in this country. But after Aidan McGeady and James McCarthy, the Irish are a fairly ordinary bunch. Everton's Seamus Coleman would be allowed in, definitely. John O'Shea, perhaps. O'Neill's keeper is Millwall's David Ford. With David Marshall, Alan McGregor, Craig Gordon and Matt Gilks around, Ford wouldn't get to carry Scotland's hampers. Well, when Matt Gilks is around, I mean, you're asking a lot for any keeper to get into this. But it'll be the same story all over the park. In almost every position, Scotland's players will come up against technically inferior opponents. (laughs) And it's when you look at it like this that you begin to realise how far Scotland have come in such a short time and distracted. Uh, I'm tipping Scotland to be too strong, too well-drilled, and ultimately too talented for the Irish to cope with. Indeed, it is entirely feasible that Scotland will will win both at Celtic Park and in Dublin. (laughs) Although Strachan will rightly be satisfied with four points from the possible six. Um, Essentially, it's it's pretty straightforward. Uh, Fear not, Scotland. We are the champions. This sounds like UFC or WWE-style promotion here. Yeah. Conor McGregor stuff. It's Well, it's 1978 World Cup Ali Starting Army. Off we go to Argentina uh, to to win the World Cup. Uh, it sounds as though that's. Uh, I mean, this is this is the defining characteristic of Scottish football uh, over the years. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things. What could you say about what does Scottish football mean? You know, there's that the the teak tough hard man, Billy McNeil, um, Graham Souness, uh, man hewn from granite, all that sort of stuff. And then you've got the uh, the devilish inspiration of uh, jinky, skillful uh, men like Jimmy Johnston, Pat Nevin, and uh, Gary Naismith. Uh, but the common factor uniting them all is this massive, overweening, misplaced confidence <laughs> about their own superiority, which has been the constant. It's like the drumbeat to which Scottish football has always marched. And okay, they did go through a pretty bad decade. Uh, you know, the 2000-2010 decade was a, was a dark, dark time for Scottish football. It looked as though maybe the game was essentially going to, you know, fall, had fallen into disuse in Scotland. There was no more players coming through. Maybe they're coming back a little bit now, but it's taken, it hasn't taken any time at all for the sales of, uh, of uh, overweening pride to uh, fill back up again. Well, what's funny about that is he, he says only, was it only four or five or three or four would get anywhere near the squad? And when he named, anywhere, anywhere near the squad. But then when he names them, he actually placed them all into the team. Well, no, he's saying any, only three or four of our squad would get anywhere near our team. Oh, anywhere and near the And he's team. saying, okay, yeah. essentially, the, the two dead starts are the two Scots. Yeah, and Seamus Coleman, the best fullback in the uh, league, will just about get in there. Seamus Coleman. Maybe just, and then well, maybe in fairness, O'Shea. it is arguable after that how many Irish players will get in the Scotland team. I, I'd say... The players are probably on both. You could argue the other way with Scotland and probably narrow it down to three or four if you want it from an Irish point of view. It's not totally outlandish for him to make that argument. It's the strident tone in which he makes it. That, I, I, but I, by the way, I don't agree. I, I, I would place another couple of Irish players in that. Which ones? Scottish team. Well, one player who doesn't get into our team would have a shot. Shane Long. Oh, yeah. You see, then again, they've got, they've, they've got um, Stephen Fletcher up front, so you're hardly going to drop in. Fletcher, they've got Anya, they've got, you know, Naismith, yeah. they've got some... Yeah, yeah got some you know, maybe, maybe they aren't. Um, so, I mean, we've, got, we've already got the Scottish players we want, thank you very much. Um, they'll do for us. We'd probably take Fletcher as well, if we could. Darren Fletcher? Oh, well, Darren Fletcher. At his, Stephen at his best. Fletcher. Stephen Fletcher. Just another... He could kind of replace Robbie Keane now, because he can kind of do the things that Keane does, uh, some of them. You think he'd get in the team ahead of... 
Robbie Keane? Oh, no, he wouldn't. No, he but would. for when Robbie Keane wouldn't retired, matter how many goals he when scored. When Robbie retires in four years. We There's no way that he can match Robbie Keane's goal-scoring record at international level. No. It's impossible for him to match Robbie Keane's goal-scoring record. Robbie Keane is a guarantee of goals. <laughs> uh, so McGeady and McCarthy will be... Well, assuming McCarthy's not injured. Well, this is the problem. McCarthy got injured in the Everton game. Now, he, he finished the game, but as usual, you hear Roberto Martinez talk about, oh, uh, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. He's, you know, we're going to have to... We're going to have to check him out to see how his fitness is because he had a bit of a problem with that hamstring and maybe he's got it again, you know. Obviously, Martinez doesn't want him playing. question is whether James McCarthy really wants to play in that game. You know, would he really want to? Difficult one for him. Um, Surely he would. Surely any professional footballer worth their salt wants to play in an environment that's potentially... You always hear professional footballers say, it's the more hostile, the better. You'd want to play for Scotland against uh, Ireland, Owen? Ireland against Scotland. Oh, would I want to play for Scotland against Ireland? Well, I don't have a mentality of a professional footballer, Ken. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, I, the big occasion would cow me completely, regardless of where it was. I mean, there's speculation now over what's going to happen um, when they go to uh, to Glasgow. If, if you know, McGeady looks like he's definitely going to play. Nothing has happened to him yet, so assuming he's fit, he will. Assuming they're fit, they'll both play. Um and uh, and different people have had different things to say about it. Gordon McQueen says he hopes they get a horrible reception uh, they, because they deserve it, uh, which is which sounds a little bit harsh. Gordon Strachan, uh, speaking last week, was saying that you know he he doesn't mind them being booed uh, as long as you don't have that nastiness about it. Then that's fine. Um, I mean, the problem is how do you how do you determine whether you've got nastiness or not? I mean, personally, I think it's fine for them to be booed. It's like. I would expect them to be booed. They're, they're born in Scotland. They decide not to play for Scotland. <laughs> Scots are Scots aren't gonna aren't gonna like that. You know, it's I don't have a problem with that. Do you? No, you always have to place this in. You have to put yourself in the shoes of the other people. It was, it was and I tried to do this around the time of the Henri handball. Mm. <laughs> I don't know why I'm bringing that back up now, but. The question asked at the time was, if Robbie Keane had done it, how would Irish fans have reacted? Would we have handed over a replay to France? Of course we wouldn't. Absolutely not. We would have been delighted if, if Robbie Keane had handballed our way to, to that particular World Cup. So in this case... Yeah, we would have thought it was hilarious. Yeah, oh, he absolutely. would have been like Luis Suarez or, or Diego Maradona. We would have been like, ah, Robbie, cute Robbie Keane. So in this case, you put yourself in an unlikely situation that two really skillful young Irish players go to play in Scotland, come back to play against us as our chief rivals, one of our chief rivals in a qualifying group. Oh, those guys are getting booed. Yeah. I mean, I didn't really like what Gordon McQueen said. I mean, he said, um, uh, he says, I hate that. I've got no time for these players. You're born in Glasgow, but then you go and play for somebody else. What's that all about? I'm not having that at all. Uh, will it be hard for them coming back here with Ireland? I really hope so. I hope they get a horrible reception because they deserve it. Um, yeah, I mean, when he says I've got no time for these players, I think that's disrespectful. I mean... They're entitled to play for oh, absolutely, the countries yeah. that they're that they're qualified for. That's fair enough. I mean, I can understand a Scottish football supporter who thinks they should have played for Scotland, wishes they had. You know, it's it's fine. You know, but again, uh, that's not a question. Their right to do what they did. Um, you know, it's not as though it's it's some spurious decision. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a perfectly respectable decision that they made. So absolutely, and I think the problem with some of this is that. And Richie Sadler wrote about this in his column yesterday that the uh, any abuse or any booing, as he says here, 
uh, that comes from Scotland fans must surely come from some deeply held non-sporting prejudices of their own. He's not. He's not saying that's the case. He's saying mm. that that's the perception that if people are booing, it's a sectarian issue all of a sudden. And he's saying that maybe it's better to accept that in every game, he says, one set of supporters will boo opposition players at some point. In many games, they keep the focus on one or two for any number of reasons. In Friday's game, it'll probably be that way too. But Cassie McGeady and and McCarthy as inevitable victims of something more serious is a little simplistic. I think so too. Um, I mean, the the, the fact is that you've got this uh, sectarian um, problem in the west of Scotland. You've got, you know, anti-Irish racism. Uh, is what increasingly this is referred to as. I mean, it used to be just sort of anti-Catholic uh, prejudice or whatever, but anti-Irish racism seems to be what people talk about now. Um, I don't know if that's, you know, it's, it's not the case here. I mean, I think Scottish-born Scottish born players who turned up playing for anyone in Scotland are going to get food. You know, it's not just because they're, they're playing for Ireland, it's because they're not playing for Scotland. It's also at Celtic Park, which would take the edge off it a little bit, maybe. You, you would imagine so. I mean, I wonder, I mean, if it was at Ibrox... You know, maybe that would be a bit more sinister. I mean, if it was Ibrox, you'd imagine James McLean would be looking at some um, some abuse as well. I mean, Ibrox, at Ibrox, they do these things now for Remembrance Day, which is like the, the May Day Parade in Red Square. You know, they've got like what seems like a whole army battalion marching around on the, on the pitch and big um, artillery pieces and all this hauled out onto the pitch at Ibrox for this militaristic uh, carnival. Um, and the poppy thing is a big... Big thing there, so James McLean. They wouldn't accept his reasoned his reasoned arguments that he put forward on Friday evening when he wrote a letter. Well, mm. the letter was initially to Dave Whelan and uh, was subsequently made public by the. Yeah, the I mean, I mean, um, Dave Whelan. Why does Dave Whelan need this explained? Is he the last person in the in the world who who is aware that James McLean doesn't doesn't wear the poppy? I mean, why did it take him? Why does he need to have this explained to him again? You know. Um, Dear Mr. Whelan, I want to write to you before talking about this face-to-face and explain my reasons for not wearing a poppy on my shirt for the game Bolton. I have complete respect for those who fought and died in both World Wars many and now are Irish-born. I've been told that your own grandfather, Paddy Whelan from Tipperary, was one of those. I mourn their deaths like every other decent person, and if the poppy was a symbol only for the lost souls of World War One and Two, I would wear one. I want to make that 100% clear. You must understand this. But the poppy is used to remember victims of other conflicts since 1945. That, this is where the problem starts for me. For people from the north of Ireland, such as myself, specifically those in Derry, seen if the 1972 Bloody Sunday Massacre, the poppy has come to mean something very different. Please understand, Mr. Whelan, when you come from Craigan, like myself, or the Bogside, Brandywell, or the majority of places in Derry, every person still lives in the shadow of one of the darkest days in Ireland's history, even if, like me, you were born nearly 20 years after the event. So essentially he's saying it would be a gesture of disrespect to those people, to my people. He can't do it. It's pretty obvious at this stage, and and, and it, I mean, in fairness, I don't think it's been a. I don't think it's like Whelan's had a problem with this. I do find it strange the way in which um, <laughs> a lot of people in Britain seem surprised at the notion that amassing an empire in which the sun never set, which was famously the um, the phrase, you know, at the time, stretching all the way around the globe, might have involved some degree of. Violence. <laughs> there, there might have been an element of violence involved in that. I mean, I was reading a piece over the weekend by uh, Jeremy Paxman, who was talking about uh, the strange death of uh, Field Marshal Kitchener. Remember Field Marshal Kitchener, the guy in the f- famous World War One poster, "Your Country Needs You," yeah. the guy with the massive mustache pointing at the. Uh, he's actually a Kerry man, but um, you know, he rose to great prominence in the British Army, and he and he died in peculiar circumstances. 
um, on his way to Russia for, for talks during the First World War. His ship hit a mine or something. People, you know, people thought there was a cover-up, but it doesn't look like there was. It just hit a mine. Um, the curious thing about Kitchener is you can never quite work out what it is he's supposed to have done that made him so great in the first place. What was the whole point of what, why did he become this big figure apart from having a great moustache and being six foot two at a time when people just didn't get that tall and the answer appears to be that he uh, machine gunned 11,000 uh, Sudanese uh, <laughs> at some point in the 1880s you know he, he essentially Kitchener's men I mean Paxman described this they arrived set up the machine guns and mowed down the dervishes right and you're thinking is that that's that's what he did. And that's to me that's not great. That's not a No. That doesn't sound like no. a, a, a wonderful military achievement. It sounds like a just a slaughter of, of badly equipped um native troops. I mean I don't see what was heroic about it. But look, I think this is a tangent down. It is a bit of a tangent. tangent, yeah. We probably should go back on. We're not we're not playing at Ibrax. We're not playing at Ibrax, we're playing at uh, Celtic Park. Park. And yeah, we're gonna have more about this uh, later on in the week. So maybe we'll move on to what else was going on uh, over the weekend. And the main thing that was happening was the uh, victory of Chelsea in the Premier League. The earliest any team has ever been crowned champions. Chelsea uh, have been proclaimed the winners of the Premier League after 11 games. Uh, this is by Arsene Wenger. Uh, Brendan Rodgers didn't hail them as the champions. Uh, he was a little bit too sick to do so, I think, after the results on Saturday. But I, I did think there was an interesting point arising out of this match. I mean, what happened was Rodgers had rested his men, as we, as we know. He wanted them ready, ready to take on Chelsea. They lost anyway. So the gamble, you could say, failed. Mourinho came after this match and he said, and Mourinho, had, their team had obviously played 24 hours later. And he made a point of saying, thank you to Ramirez and thank you to Cesc Fabregas for turning up here at Anfield and playing that match injured as they were. Uh, they, they put themselves out there for the team. And I'm, I'm, I'm maybe going to lose those boys now. I'm maybe going to lose them for a game or two. But they came out here, even though they were injured, they went out there and played. And I know, I know they suffered a lot of pain, but that's what it takes if you want to win the championship. And I just thought this is it. Remember we were talking a few weeks ago about this idea of injuries being a question to some extent of mind over matter? I mean, we were saying, could you play with a... You said, well, you couldn't play with a torn hamstring. Well, you can play with a sore hamstring. I remember in, in Roy Keane's book, he actually then mentions having a conversation with Ruud van Nistelrooy about this. Uh, van Nistelrooy says, well, you know, I've got a sore knee. I'm not going to play in the FA Cup semi-final against Arsenal. Keane says, well, I've got a sore hamstring. I'm going to play. Ruud is like, well, you know, bully for you. Uh, and it turns out Keane did have a torn hamstring. Yeah. I was reading that going, ah, you can play with a torn hamstring. It's just a question of how torn you, ex- you accept it to be. Um, Mourinho encourages that sort of attitude. Uh, maybe it's, it's kind of an old school sort of attitude. Rodgers, I think, by what he did against Real Madrid, was com- it was completely the opposite thing. It was like, oh, we can't possibly handle these games. How do you know you can't possibly handle them? Challenge your players to do it. This is, the, this is the most difficult week of their season. Challenge them to prove their heroism, really. It's, that's what Mourinho would do. In Rogers' case, oh, you know, I'll give you the night off. You know, you, can, you get some rest. You know, we're going to need it against Chelsea. They're an unbelievably strong team. Ah, come on, Alex Ferguson. Alex Ferguson, he wouldn't give away a Champions League game. No, of course like he wouldn't. But he, Alex Ferguson? When is Alex Ferguson going to go to Real Madrid and run up the white flag? He's not, but he's a massive squad rotator and was one of the first to do it in any sort so of that you can play, So that you can play... The Real Madrid game with a strong squad. They were playing against Newcastle. I mean, they lost that game as well. 
That's the game they should have been rotating for if they wanted to. If they figured they needed to rotate players, you know, if they if they Real Madrid and Chelsea didn't Ferguson make that mistake one year in the Champions League? He rested players for a couple of couple of games and suddenly they lost them and oh, they were bang out of the Champions League. He rested them for for what he assumed they were going to be winning, like Basel yeah. at home kind <laughs> of thing. He assumed yeah. they'd easily win and they and they didn't. I mean, that kind of thing can happen. So what um, I'm saying is Ferguson doesn't send 11 guys out if half of them are possibly injured. You know, I don't, I, maybe he's somewhere between... Well, he clearly did back in the day when he, well, he yeah. got the likes of uh, Roy Keane playing. Um, you know, he was happy enough to do it. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, what, what's Arsene Wenger this... I mean, I don't know if he felt it more comfortable to talk about Chelsea than Arsenal after the, after what happened to them. I mean, they're one nil up, two one down. This comes after losing a three nil lead um, away to, uh, uh, or rather, at home to Anderlecht. Now he says at the moment Chelsea are on course for a hundred points. Uh, if you look at the number of points they have, nobody will catch them if they keep that up. There doesn't look to be anybody capable to challenge them at the moment. There's no obvious reason why they're so dominant. They had a good start. Uh, we've gone through that in the past. As long as you don't lose, you don't question yourself. There's a little bit extra spirit in the team that when it's tight gets them through. As long as you don't lose and don't question yourself, it's very typically Arsene Wenger thing to say. As though like questioning yourself was the flaw, you know that would that would cause everything to unravel. If you suddenly started, if you got trapped into a spiral of self self doubt, I think Chelsea do question themselves. I mean, you know, I don't think. I think they're just going out there, sort of blindly going, "Okay, you know, we're we're great." You know, I think I think it's a Chelsea are finding the answers. I think Chelsea are realistic. You know, they have a realistic attitude to the game, uh, an unrealistic attitude to the game is what Arsenal have been doing. You know, and and you saw, you've seen these kind of uh, old. I mean, Wenger was very withering about Paul Merson. What did he say? Paul Merson was was criticising there. He said, "Called him clueless." So this is clueless. You know, how can you be three and up, lose uh, or draw three three? Be counterattacking or, or be counterattacked when you're when you're Jamie Carragher making the same point. Wenger said about Merson, well, look, I managed Paul Merson, I tried. Not interested in it, he has to say. You know, it's, it's like, what are you, what are you dismissing Paul Merson because when he was a player with you, he had, as everybody knows, problems which he wrote about since, you know, drink, gambling, and drugs, and so on. So, because of that. He doesn't know anything about football. Is that the argument you're making? I said because he, you know, he, he's developed this team recently as well. Where oh, you have people who have managed zero games, teaching everyone how to how they should be managed. You know, who these people think they are. You know, but at some point you're kind of wondering who who exactly is entitled to voice a criticism of him. Apparently not Paul Merson, who was a great player for Arsenal, who won the title with Arsenal. He's not allowed to say anything. I mean, you understand, you know, flyweight journalists, whatever, being dismissed by Wenger, but. This is the man who was called the specialist in failure by mm, the most successful manager in the division as well. Yeah, you know. So I don't know. At yeah. some point, it starts to it starts to add up. Louis van Gaal, the only other candidate, I suppose, for that title of most expensive, most successful rather manager in the division, apart from Mourinho, um, is he's expressing a bit of self doubt. Not that Arsene Wenger obviously wouldn't wouldn't endorse this, um, but he's. Uh, He's essentially saying, uh, yeah, we're not really sure. It's the changes that are made. He's already used more players in this um, season than any manager has used in an entire season in the league. Um, and he's changed the system three times. Um, started with three at the back, went to kind of four four two. Now he's gone to a single striker formation. It's too many changes, I agree. But I'm looking for the balance. Um, and when you see the last four matches, we have more bounce because we haven't conceded many goals. 
but we don't score so much. With the other system, we scored a lot of goals. <laughs> so Louis van Gaal is kind of scratching his head and not, not quite sure what to do. I mean, one of the problems that he has is um, the Falcao signing has not really happened yet. You know, Falcao is not, is not a presence yet. Um, he appears to have a fitness problem. But the problem is that Van Persie also has a problem. <clears throat> this has been the case with Robin Van Persie, <clears throat> excuse me, since he got that knee injury against Olympiacos. Uh, if you remember, it was, it was he didn't play again for Manchester United that season. Uh, but he didn't have an operation on his injured knee. Um, instead, he wanted to play in the World Cup for... Who was the manager of Holland again? Now he's the manager of Manchester United and he's got a Robin van Persie who maybe could have been uh, ha- had himself fully sorted out had he gone for an operation in March that would have possibly caused him to miss the World Cup. Uh, and now maybe it's Louis van Gaal finds himself uh, on the other what side of the I, fence. What if I didn't have it after the World Cup then? Presumably they felt he didn't need to. He could get away without doing it. He certainly died away during that World Cup after a fairly spectacular start. Oh, amazing. I mean, I remember talking about, we were talking about that after the first game. It was, you know, literally, I don't think I've seen this guy this sharp. This is amazing, the condition he's got himself in. And then just all sort of blew itself out very fast. He just looked exhausted in the latter stages of the games. was getting subbed off. Um, but, you know, there you go. A bit of self-doubt from Final. But the point is, another, well, not, not another, it's not as though they've been on a good run or anything, but they managed to get the win. The Very win. quick word from a man who doesn't usually suffer from self-doubt, certainly not in a public way. Adebayor. Adebayor. Well, he's, you know, Tottenham lost. We'll be talking about that, that in a bit more detail, but he's, um, you know, the, the crowd at White Hart Lane apparently weren't as supportive as Adebayor would have liked. Instead of booing people, which makes it worse, I think it's sometimes better to support them. Uh, right now, to tell you the truth, a lot of players, when they put on the shirt and go out into the pitch, are finding it hard in the head, says Adebayor. This is going to be music to the ears of Spurs fans, isn't it? It's kind of hard when you know the first bad ball you make, the fans are going to boo you, says Adebayor. When you're playing in front of your own crowd, you want them to support you, but now it's like going through a sad moment and your family isn't welcoming you home. That's the worst thing ever, because you have nowhere to go. At the moment, I don't know whether we should play at home or whether we should play away. Um, uh, I could see uh, against Stoke... Um, I could see that nobody wanted the ball. It's hard for the players. It's not their fault. And it's not the fans' fault either. So that's where we're worried maybe he was, he was making himself a, a, you know, a target for a, a sort of a whipping boy for the crowd. Um, he's a good manager, he says about Pochettino. And Pochettino left him on the bench. You know, Adebayor didn't like that. We just have to find a way so that we can try to understand what he wants to tell us and how he wants us to play and put that on the pitch. So... To me, that doesn't sound very good. No. When you say, he's a good manager, we just have to try and figure out what the hell he's trying to <laughs> he's say to He's a good manager, us. but... Yeah, and Adam, we were just finished off by saying, um, to be honest, yes, I think it is good to be that where next game is away from home. At least you know you're going to have the majority of opposition fans booing you, and but not my own fans. And I'm not just talking about me, I'm speaking on behalf of all the players. That's the end of Kennedy's report on sport. Shane Kern with the kick out. The 42-year-old goalkeeper. Turned it out from goal. Here he comes. He topped it. He fought it. He's 50 yards out from goal. What a day for us coming. All the mother niggas lame and you know it now. When the real nigga hold you down, you're supposed to drown. Down. 1944 is the last time a senior tiger come out of here. And the one, 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 one with the last one. Down. What a day for us coming.
Tony Barrett of the Times joins us to talk about Liverpool and Rodgers. Probably the worst week of his career, I guess. Three defeats in a row, Tony, and the cop booing his substitutions, uh, which was, I don't know, was it the first time he was, he's was he been booed or jeered in any way? Yeah, I think it was. I mean, when Brendan Rodgers was first appointed Liverpool manager, there was, there was not indifference that would be too strong, but there was curiosity more than anything else. He was an unproven manager at the highest level, somebody who hadn't been a manager for a long time. And, and Liverpool fans were, were quite patient, but they were also curious. They wanted to see exactly what he was about. So they allowed the first season to go, and there was, there was things that they liked, things that they didn't like. And obviously the second season, that all changed. And uh, Liverpool became this, this wondrous team who, who had beaten all comers pretty much. And uh, uh, he, But even throughout that time, there was still nagging doubts about Brennan Rodgers, still people who were saying, can he set up a defence? We know we're playing going forward, but uh, does he know how to stop other teams from playing? And, and that dragged on into this season. And when the goals have dried up uh, and Liverpool have carried on conceding, those doubts have grown. And, and obviously at the weekend, you had the situation where two of the substitutions were, were booed. And it, it was heavy booing. It wasn't just... Uh, a few it wasn't a minority it was it was a lot of people in the ground and so that that just shows the kind of pressure he's now working under it's it's now changed a lot it's now not Brendan Rodgers who's who's taken Liverpool to, to within inches of the title it's Brendan Rodgers who's, who took Liverpool in the other direction and people are starting to ask daily searching questions Just on, on the substitutions point Tony I mean the, the actual substitution was Coutinho and uh, Emery Chan coming off um, was that what the crowd were upset about? They wanted to see those guys left on, or, or did they not want to see? Was it Alan and Lalana coming on to replace them? No, it was the two players they, they didn't want to go off. And, and listen on this, I've, I've got a bit of sympathy for Brendan Rodgers, uh, particularly on the MRA Cham one. I, I thought Can was bright in patches. Uh, obviously, he scored the goal via the deflection, but he was ambitious, tried to get to get forward when he could. But I thought he was shattered after about fifteen minutes. Uh, since he's come to Liverpool, even before he got injured, he's been concerned about his fitness, about his mobility, his ability to last the pace of games and I thought that was, was evident again on, on Saturday sorry, t- sorry Tony did you say 15 one five minutes yeah I, I just thought <laughs> I, I thought very early on the game I mean he hasn't played much football so I thought it was that one where he started off like a house on fire and all of a sudden he hit a wall uh, and that might be a case of him finding his fitness but I just thought you could see he became leggy started making bad decisions losing the ball when he shouldn't do uh, and stumbling falling over things like that things that you could see just wasn't quite at it uh, Calcino I've, I've got a little bit more sympathy with the crowd and I thought he was Liverpool's uh, most enterprising player certainly in an attacking sense he was, he was one looking to try and get on the ball and, and make a difference but he was also the player who, who let Azpilicheta escape for, the, for what turned out to be the winning goal and you can, you can look at the reasons why he was taken off and I'm sure Brendan Dodge can justify them but, but at the moment I just think it shows he's, he's not got as much slack as he was getting I think it was also I, I think the reaction was a little bit of a hangover to the team selection in Madrid there was, there was a silent minority or majority whichever it may be of people who weren't impressed with that uh, selection and I, I think frustration boiled over at those substitutions What does it usually mean for a Liverpool manager when they start getting booed? Uh, traditionally can they win the crowd back? Yeah, they can. I mean, that's what Benitez's substitution is likely. Booth, he, had, he had players booth coming on. He had Lucas booth coming on in a season which finished with Liverpool finished second. And I, I think there's, there's other examples. The, the Anfield crowd is a... I mean, Bob Paisley was... There was a famous time when Bob Paisley was getting a, a bit of stick off the Anfield crowd and, and Bob Paisley even into you afterwards and, and just reminded of how impatient they were being. Uh, so so it, it's not the, the death knell by any means, but it does... It's the difference with Brendan Rodgers. He doesn't have a load of 
trophies behind him that he can that the fans can look on and say it's all right, he'll get it right. He's he's got one very, very good season and it was that. Uh, but that kind of that does go become the past very, very quickly and I think that's happened already. So what did you think? I mean, maybe the the whole Real Madrid thing, the team that was picked against Madrid, you really had to wait and see what happened against Chelsea before that decision could be judged because he, you know, he, he seemed to be suggesting, OK, I'm, pri- I'm prioritising that Chelsea game. So if they had got a result, then maybe you would have said, well, uh, that, that decision worked out. It didn't work out. Um, it looks like a really terrible decision in hindsight. I mean, it, lo- it looked bad at the time and it looks even worse today. Well, what, what I would say is, is it, it wasn't a self-centered decision. Brendan Rodgers will have known that if you lose in Madrid with that team and then you go into the next game against Chelsea and you don't win, he's putting himself under pressure. So from that point of view, he's, he's making decisions that he thinks are, right, thinks are right for the team. The whole week build-up to the Chelsea game was about the Chelsea game. It wasn't about the Real Madrid game. That was incidental. Liverpool flew the full squad out, out to Madrid, which they don't usually do. They usually take the players who are going to be involved. Uh, they also they, they stayed in Madrid for three days. The team flight that was that came back straight after the game came back without the team simply because the, the, then they decided that the, the team would stay behind and, and have an extra night's sleep. And it was about recovery time for Chelsea. The team was obviously picked against Real Madrid with Chelsea in mind we now know that's an absolute fact people were saying it was about players being dropped but six of the players who, who were left out came straight back in so they clearly weren't dropped they were arrested with abuse of playing against Chelsea so when you've done all those things you've taken those extraordinary measures you've basically you've made it a game against Real Madrid secondary uh, and then you don't win the Chelsea game or at the very least you don't put up a good fight you don't put up a good, good performance which justifies everything that's gone before you are putting yourself under pressure and then that's the thing in this case managers can often look to external circumstances they can look to injuries they can look to the media they can look to pay, uh, supporters being impatient or players letting them down but in this case this, this is an instance where a manager's actually put himself under pressure Yeah I mean uh, the, in a way the most interesting part of it is that um, the Real Madrid game didn't seem to affect his selection for the Chelsea game at all because some of the Liverpool players did reasonably well in that. I mean, I would I would say, for instance, I mean, Colatore, everyone was talking about him, and he did have a particularly good game against Madrid, but you can understand maybe Rodgers might look at that and think it's a one-off. But Rini, uh, up front, seems like a, a better player to have there than Balotelli. He just doesn't really give the team anything at all. But the point about all this is that Rodgers saw these guys do quite well against Real Madrid, and then just, it, it didn't count for anything. They were all back on the bench. No, it didn't. And one of the things Roger said in his, his build-up to Chelsea, and that he, he said the media being quite disrespectful to the players who played in Madrid because uh, they've been described as second string in reserves and, and they're not that. Uh, but then a team selection for, for the Chelsea game proved that that's exactly how he'd used them. Uh, I, I think there's, I think he's probably given himself a problem in the dressing room because on the one hand you've got players who have thought that they'd earn the right to play in Madrid I mean I, I thought Jamie Carragher's column in the Daily Mail's interest on that Carragher spoke about the likes of Henderson Gerrard and Sterling who, who were fundamental to everything Liverpool did last season who, who would have thought that they deserved a chance to play at the Bernabeu now that obviously some Coveland got on the sub but he didn't get to start the game he didn't really get to influence it and you've got the other side of the dressing room the players who did come in who, who who gave good accounts of themselves and then were pulled straight back out again when, when Chelsea came to Anfield. So I, I just think on all fronts, Rodgers given himself a bit, quite a lot of work to do and I, th- I think that's the way I think from his point of view is it, once you start doing that, once you, once you put yourself in that kind of position, it, it is difficult to come back from. I'm not saying it's impossible and 
it's it's no more than a difficulty, but it was a difficulty that he that was probably unnecessary. Where does Stephen Jarrett fit into all this now, given his article from a couple of weeks back, uh, where he essentially issued I don't know what you would call it, but it's a, it's a sign me up now or I'll leave kind of a threat almost. Is there a danger that that is the kind of distraction that can that can uh, maybe affect the team? Particularly, no, nobody would probably mind too much if Liverpool were riding high, but could Liverpool do without that kind of a distraction, or is it fair enough from Jarrett's point of view? I, th- I think Liverpool have got a, a load of distractions at the moment. You, you, you look at a, a lot of things that are going on at the club and there just seems to be a su- succession of distractions. I mean, I, I, I think the situation with Stephen Gerrard should have been tackled before then. It, it just takes a phone call. It takes the managing director calling Stephen Gerrard's agent. It takes Brendan Rodgers calling Stephen Gerrard into his office and just say, seeing exactly where the land lies. It, it's that failure for me to, to tackle problems early on. Now, now whether Liverpool are going to give Stephen Gerrard a contract that I would presume they are. There's nothing to suggest otherwise. But it, when it gets to October, November time, Stephen Gerrard can talk to other clubs in January. Surely at that point, some of the clubs should take it in hand and say, Stephen, this is what we've got in mind for you. It, it mightn't be about money. It might be about playing time for next year. It might be that Liverpool have someone in mind who they're going to uh, build their midfield around for the years to come who they're looking to bring in the summer. And can he adapt to that? Because I think that's the big thing. It's not about money. It's not about length of contract. It'll probably be a one-year extension with similar terms to what he's on now. Uh, so I don't think that would be a major issue. The issue would be, is is he going to play? How much is he going to be involved? Does that suit the manager to have a player of his influence around? If if he's not playing, does it suit Steven Gerrard to be around if, if he's not going to be playing regularly? I just think that conversation should have been had and it's been put off to the point where Steven Gerrard went public. And, and that is, it, it is just a, another distraction. It's the kind of thing that Liverpool have got going on at the minute. One other thing here, Tony, is, I mean, I remember in the summer, just before the season started, um, people were, the, the the comparisons between Liverpool this season and Tottenham last season were, were really obvious even then. Same situation with a player leaving for a lot of money and lots and lots of players coming in to replace them. And the, the thing that became apparent at Tottenham quite quickly as things fell apart was that uh, the manager then, Andre Villas-Boas, didn't like the players who the director of, of football had signed. And there was a lot of uncertainty over who was responsible for bringing in which players? It seems like this is something that's happened at Liverpool again. Um, no one is quite sure how much Brendan Rodgers wanted each of these players. Did he want, you know, maybe one particular player was more his idea than another? Certainly, it seems like some of them weren't his idea at all. Um, and maybe this is a kind of a, a difficulty with the with the system of a sort of director of football type system that. In the past, when the manager was signed the players, at least he was accountable for the players. These people kind of knew where they stood. Uh, you know, he's brought this guy in, he's brought that guy in. It seems at the moment there's a lot of guys there who don't even know, who, who don't know whether the manager they're playing for even wants them in the squad. I think Liverpool's is, is a bit more complex than Tottenham's, where they have a state director of football who's signing players and manager who have to then deal with them. Brendan Rodgers said that he has the final say on players, but it's what he's actually got the final say on. That, that's the issue for me. The Liverpool have a, a, a strategy in place which is about targeting young players with potential. It's not about signing the finished article, and I think I think you can see the difference in that uh, approach in comparison with Chelsea's at the weekend. Chelsea signed proven winners. Liverpool signed players who may one day be winners, but aren't at the moment. So Liverpool is a long-term strategy, but. If the manager had the final say, what does he have the final say on? Now, he had the final say on Mario, Mario Balotelli, but the final say was Mario Balotelli or nothing. So, when you're faced with that decision, I mean, if I was Brendan Rodgers in that position, I would have taken Mario Balotelli because Liverpool do not have options up front. They, they don't have enough, play, enough players. 
I think I think you could split the plays into plays that he 100 wanted. I think I think Ricky Lambert, Dejan Lovren, Adam Lallana, Lazar Markovic were all plays that he wanted. I think there's other players who there's a question mark about Alberto Moreno. The Brendan Rodgers was interested in other left backs. The Manquillo, I don't think that was a player that, that Brendan Rodgers went out for. And I, I just think there is a bit of a, a mess there, and it's it, it is who takes responsibility. But for me, the ultimate responsibility lies above Brendan Rodgers. It lies above the transfer committee. It lies with the owners because they are the ones who wanted the transfer committee. They wanted this approach, and they also set the parameters that they exist in. So for me, it's it's it, it's it's easy to point a finger at the transfer committee or the manager. But the system is set in place by the owners, and it's up to them how they want their club to be run. It's funny, you talk about Liverpool and they have their specific problems. Manchester City, for all the money they have, seem to have issues at the moment as well. And Arsenal just can't, just look like they're never really going to get back to, to where they were. Why is it Jose Mourinho doesn't seem to have any any of these issues at all with Chelsea? Certainly not this year. I just I just think what they do is is absolute common sense. They get to the end, at the end of the season, they see where they're lacking. And they buy the best players possible. They don't buy players who can go either way. They buy Cesc Fabregas and Diego Costa, who are absolute top-class players. And, and everyone could see that in the summer. So you bring in two top-class players. And you see the difference. Felipe Luiz, who's, who's come in and, and isn't getting a game at left-back, as as Flechetta doing so well. He would walk into Liverpool's team. He's the kind of player that Liverpool lack, just a defender who defends as, as if his life depends on it. He also, he, he does, he used to wear to when he spoke to us after the game on Saturday, he used his mentality. And it's his mentality in the players. And that's something that people you can't get away from. Whether people like Mourinho or not, whether they like his style of football or not, his players put everything on the line in every game. And Gary Cahill was embodied that at the weekend. Gary Cahill could have given away two penalties. He had one uh, goal that a goal that came from a deflection off him but this, this is because he's coming out charging shots down this is because he's trying he'll, he will do anything to st- try and stop a goal from going in and if you compare that with Liverpool players Liverpool, Liverpool aren't of that ilk Liverpool do not set up to, to stop goals in the same way they don't have that same approach and again that comes to the manager and I just think that Mourinho has an approach that, that gets that into, into top class players and you've got that they're going to be successful Yeah Alright Tony we'll leave it there thanks Emil Cheers good speak to you yeah, to go back to the subs uh, situation, Emre Chan, I think, Ken, may have been lucky to be subbed off the same time as Coutinho to take some of that praise. It might have been a triumph of circumstance rather than the crowd going, OK, these, Emre Chan, this, is, this, is this guy should be staying on the field. Maybe it was more that he was, it was Coutinho who was, being, um, who was essentially being backed by the Liverpool fans. I, mean, I remember these circumstances can sometimes throw up funny situations such as Brian O'Driscoll's last game uh, at the Aviva yeah. for Ireland against Italy he's after playing unbelievably well creating a few tries you remember that big, uh, the big banner banner that came up but before the banner came his substitution and the crowd all going crazy and him going to great but just, bef- just as Fergus McFadden was limbering up to replace him and was talking to the touch judge who was about to bring him on he whispers he goes why did you see the reception I get the crowd love me here <laughs> and of course then the crowds are going crazy and it's a, it's, a, it's a reasonable joke. Somewhat crowbarred into this conversation, though. I don't know why that came into my head. No, not um, at all. What does this mean for Rodgers getting booed? Can he recover from it? If yeah. Bob, if Bob Paisley was booed, then I'm sure, or, or at least um, criticised. You know, the Liverpool crowd is, is, is not necessarily, is not very patient. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting when you think about 
there's this reputation. You, you often hear, for instance, commentators upon it say, oh, it's such a well-educated crowd, which I always find a bit patronizing. They really know their football here. Of course they do. They, 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 watch, they watch it every week. Um, but I remember reading in the you know the Hopcraft's book, The Football Man, I mean, he went to Anfield a lot, and we're talking about the 60s here, 50s and 60s. And he said this was by far the meanest ground in the country. Just no, there was no sense of fairness. That's that He felt that that was, he used to get loads of angry letters from Liverpool fans complaining about the way that he talked about, talked about Liverpool <laughs> and he didn't give them enough respect. But he was saying that the sort of howl, the, the howls of derision from, from this stand, the cop, was just, there was no quarter given whatsoever. This, this was to the opposition, where he said at a lot of grounds at that time, it was common if the opponent did something particularly good, he might get a round of applause or, you know, if someone played particularly well, the crowd might show some acknowledgement. Never, ever. At Liverpool. Now, I had seen it happen a couple of times at Liverpool. You know, I remember Barcelona came and played them off the park about 12 years ago, 13 years ago, 1 3 1. And they got a, I think they got a round of applause that night. Um, but, you know, it's not, it's not a forgiving kind of a place. You know, it's a place for strong, uh, where strong players tend to do better than the weaker ones. And at the moment, I think they've got a lot of weak players. And I mean, you know, we've, we were talking about Rogers last season. You know, when everything was going well and, you know, I, to be honest, it seemed to me as though Suarez was mainly the, the instigator there. And now that he's gone, it looks as though everything's falling apart. And so. another, yeah, another manager getting grief from his fans was Mauricio Pochettino after Tottenham's loss to Stoke. We touched on this earlier on with Adebayor's comments. Jack Pitbrook was at White Hart Lane. Jack, I'm not sure how audible the boos were at the end of the match. You wrote that the music was played quite loudly and quite suspiciously suddenly after the game. Yes, I've never seen anything like it, to be honest. The music came on as soon as Mike Jones blew his final whistle in a way which can only have been pre-planned. Uh, and it meant that while there were an awful lot of boos as soon as the game finished, they were drowned out quite effectively. Although the Spurs fans who stayed until the end of the song did in fact boo once it had finished to register their annoyance. Uh, what, what had so disgusted them, apart from the fact that Tottenham have just lost their fourth game at home uh, in the league this season? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty bad result but what, what was it that went wrong for Tottenham on the field? Well, I think in every, in every home game in the league this year, with the exception of Queen's Park Rangers and Southampton, the players have set new standards for fecklessness, laziness, lack of courage, like lack of wanting the ball, their inability to deal with anything going wrong. I mean, it's not just they've lost four times, but they've lost to Liverpool, West Bromwich Albion, Newcastle and, um, and Stoke City. And the Stoke defeat was the worst one of the lot. I mean, they never looked like they weren't going to win. Sorry, they never looked like they were going to win. They had one good chance after four minutes, and then they conceded two very preventable goals to a Stoke team who didn't actually have to do that much to win the game. Well, I don't understand how this is the case, because, you know, it's only a couple of seasons ago that Tottenham, okay, they had players like Luka Modric and Gareth Bale, um, but there was a great team spirit there. There was a sense of of a team that had a strong identity, um, there certainly wasn't a sense of a team that was going to lose all its home games. So how did that change and who's responsible for, for the change? Well, I think Daniel Levy's responsible for the change in, in that he's in charge of buying and selling, also through Franco Baldini. I think it's, well, it's two things. It's One, has been the decline of quality and that they've lost their very good players, obviously Bale, Modric, to a lesser extent, Van der Vaart. And then the players with the other side of the game, the ugly side, Dawson, Parker, Friedel have gone themselves and so they've been left with only the filler 
really. He's, you know, quite good players themselves, but not good enough to be, you know, you know not as good as Modric and Bale, and not frankly uh, reliable enough as, as the leaders they've lost. And I mean, lots of people have mocked Tim Sherwood and have their own opinions about Tim Sherwood. But he, the two things he said last year about the Spurs squad have been proven right. One, that they've got no character, which is very obviously every time you see them play. And two, that their midfielders are, quote, much of a muchness. I mean, there's so many six out of ten players there. That it doesn't really matter which one's Pochettino picks on any given day because the results are always the same. I forgot about that much of a muchness quote. It really is quite damning. He's not even saying any of them are terrible. He's just saying none of them are, are particularly good. They all do sort of roughly the same thing. And Pochettino maybe is... Maybe he's walked into a job that, that is tougher than he thought. Yeah, certainly. I mean, the um, I think the effect of the last few years on the Tottenham squad must be very damaging. You know, they're, they're very obviously going in the wrong direction. They have been, arguably, ever since Chelsea won the Champions League in 2012, knocking them out of the next season's competition. And that must have an effect on the players. You know, as a fan of football, all you can really ask for, for your team is a sense of positive direction. And uh, the one thing that's, you know, the, the, the very obvious thing looking at Spurs in the last 6, 12, 18 months is that they're moving in the wrong way. It's a really interesting situation that Tottenham have now in terms of how they're going to sort of rebuild themselves because the traditional approach is to sign a bunch of new players. But Spurs have tried that and it's, that in a way is what's got them to where they are now. Um, I mean, how do you think that, that, that Pochettino is going to take this chaos of a squad and turn it back into a team? It, is it something that he's going to need? Is it a case that, unfortunately, we're just going to need to do what we did 18 months ago? We're literally going to have to get rid of half the squad and start over. Yeah, I mean, that, that is exactly it. They, the current players obviously are not good enough, and he will want to get rid of lots of them. But then, I mean, you know, they've had... They tried to bring in lots of good players from abroad this summer. They made no impact. Last summer made no impact. And it's not obvious that that's the solution. They could look to the youth academy, but then they started three academy players on Sunday in Townsend, Kane, and Mason, and they made no impact on the game whatsoever. So it's not, you know, this idea that the youth academy will provide the character which the imported players don't have is, I think, a bit optimistic as well. But, you know, they will have... Obviously, people are going to have to go, and there's certainly players that Pochettino isn't too keen on. But the two players who want to go the most, Jan Vertonghen and Hugo Lloris, are his two best players. So it's hard to see any satisfactory solution within the next six to 12 months. Well, they did at one point show the Tottenham bench, and it was, you know, <laughs> what a great bench they, they have. You know, literally, uh, every, every man on the bench was uh, was uh, an international who cost them a hell of a lot of money. One of the faces looking back was Jan Vertonghen, uh, and I just want to ask you specifically about him. I mean, you just said he, he obviously wants to leave. But where did it where did it go wrong for Vertonghen? I can't understand how he can't get in the team. It's, okay, maybe he does want to go. But I don't understand how it's of benefit to Tottenham to have what I think, what I take to be one of their best defenders on the bench. Is, is he no longer one of their best defenders? Has something gone wrong in the career of Jan Vertonghen? No, I, no he's absolutely their best defender. I mean, for me, he's the best outfield player. Um and it's, it's almost absurd that he's not playing and that he's not captain. I think what it really comes down to is attitude. Vertonghen had fallings out with Villas-Boas over when he played left-back or centre-back. He didn't particularly like Tim Sherwood, and his attitude in the second half of last season wasn't very good, and, uh, and that led to falling out between them. There have been, I think, lots of people were optimistic that when Pochettino came in, Vertonghen would start applying himself better and playing better. But in fact, I mean, I don't think that's happened. 
some people at Spurs will tell you that there's been a falling out between Pochettino and Vertonghen. I've been told that he's already been warned about his attitude this season. I think it's fairly obvious that he wants to go. He's got two years left in his contract with an option for another two. But I wouldn't be surprised if someone came in for him this summer because clearly his his head is not right, his head is not currently right to be in a, as good as he can be for Tottenham Hotspur. Okay, Jack Pitbrook, good to talk to you. Thanks a million. Thanks. So fetlessness, laziness, unable to fix anything going wrong. Uh, things don't sound too good for the Spurs <laughs> team at the moment. No, it really doesn't. I mean, you know, like we were talking about Adebayor earlier. Adebayor. Come on, what are you doing? This is, it's a huge, long interview talking about this thing. Forget it. Don't, no one wants to hear that. Just go out and try and control the ball. You know, if, you, if you're saying it doesn't matter who's booing you, your own fans, the, the opposing fans, just get out there and try and play well. That's what, it's up to you to do that. Fans can't do it for you. Well, it's something that we touched on right at the start of the show, and that was how McCarthy and McGeady are going to handle playing against Scotland and probably getting booed there. And the point I made was that you're supposed to. It's a very, it's a very old school way of viewing things. But I'm sure even I'm sure it's one of those values that holds to the modern day. That like right through football, or certainly since grounds started becoming intimidating, that yet that you you have to actually improve in that circumstance. You can't even take one step back from it. This is you should be ideally you should be the kind of person who says right, this is brilliant. I'm going to play better because I'm being booed. And Adebayor doesn't necessarily strike you as that kind of guy. He marches at the beat of his own drum. Adebayor starts to sulk, you know? I mean, and it, it is different in fairness being booed by your own fans to, to the opposing fans. That is true. Because very true, yeah. opposing fans are doing it because they, they some reason, they dislike you. Often you're the best player on the team. Yeah, it's or, a compliment as opposed to... Uh, yeah, whereas your own fans being are being bullied, because they don't like you. They think you're a bad player. They wish you weren't there. Yeah. And that's obviously a little bit <laughs> worse on the, on the confidence. But it's still up to the player to try and overcome that and moaning and whinging about it like Adebayor has been doing is really not going to get him anywhere. Well, Thursday's football show is going to feature heavily Scotland against Ireland. Looking forward to it already. Our first podcast is out today. We spoke to Lisa Fallon there. She's part of Michael O'Neill's backroom team with Northern Ireland who have three wins out of three so far in their group. They play Romania um, on Friday. We also had Jerry Thorney and Matt Williams on the rugby. You attended Ireland against South Africa again? I did. Your first rugby game in many years? First since the uh, All Blacks game at Croke Park. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you find this one? A victory this time? Yeah. I. How does anyone follow what's happening in the field? It's impossible. <laughs> it's just impossible to tell what's going I mean, the guys are, are wrestling each other, and then the referee gives one side three points. <laughs> That's essentially what's that. It's just, just long periods of wrestling interspersed with the referee randomly awarding a score to one side or the other. What about the two? T- <laughs> That's a, a one description. What are the, the two tries that Ireland scored from power plays, as they're called these days? Well, the second one I thought was, was very, very nice. Conor Murray's box kick for Tommy Bow. To, well, not, not even box kick, but his little chip kick for Tommy Bow in the corner. First one um, seemed to come out of nowhere, you know? Well, uh, it came from a line-out. Yeah. It was probably badly defended by South Africa in terms of their mall, that's true. Ireland is only scuttling through. Yeah, it was But it was it's, it's more of a television sport, you feel, rugby, as opposed to a stadium. Well, I've, I mean, I was there with a, with a, group, of, uh, with a group of friends and, uh, you know, we were sitting up there, we were, having a, we were drinking a couple of pints of Guinness and that and we were chatting about the Web Summit and stuff like that. And uh, <laughs> Just a couple of guys at the, at the rugby match talking about the Web Summit. Right, yeah. So, <laughs> that could have been your first issue, that you weren't really fully engaged. Oh, I was trying to engage, but it was a little cold as well. You know, if you have, you should. I don't think they should serve alcohol at sporting events. I mean, I I watch the vast majority of them sober. In you know, in my in my job, it's my job to watch these things. I don't I don't turn up and drink. That would be unprofessional. It would be wrong to do that. So I, I'm unaccustomed to it. Maybe there are people who can take a lot of 
<clears throat> alcohol on board and and still feel as though they're really following what's happening in the game. I don't think I'm one of those that people. That is a conversation where we've reached the end of this program, Ken. Maybe that's something we'll pick up on again. Especially when it's cold like that. You know, you, you kind of feel like maybe someone who's drinking on a park bench or something. Uh, you know, it's a little bit cold, a little bit dozy. I don't know if... Uh, it's the best way to watch it's not, It's You're not mentally sharp. You know, you're not really living... I mean, to be honest, Owen, by the time that that last try went in. I just lost all sense of reality. It, it was a case of, oh right, this is still going on. All right, you know. I thought the talks, some of the talks were pretty good, but like you know, I don't know. Like you're it, probably better off just uh, staying staying dry the next time you go. Can listen as always to the shows on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on the podcast Republic app. You can uh, also check out irishtimes.com dot forward slash podcast to hear any of the rest of the Irish Times podcast. Thanks, thank you very much for listening today. Thanks, Ken. Thank you. Sorry you didn't enjoy the rugby that much and we'll talk to you again later on in the week. Take care. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 